Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Cynthia Kao and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody, to the Veteran Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Carter. Uh, I'm back. Welcome. Uh, Cynthia is also back. We're back together. We're both back. And it's September. Isn't that crazy? The Dude, summer just blew by. I can't even... I've been having meetings uh, in the last few weeks, and every meeting's like, how the fuck is it September already? Like, it's I don't... really kind of sad, because every time a new season comes by, it just reminds me I'm getting older. It's bananas. I'm like, oh no, my birthday is coming up. I don't want to celebrate it. Same, same. Uh, you know, we we have close birthdays. Mine's Sunday, of course, and uh, I know yours is coming up. It's, I just it like it goes by. And my kids are starting school on Wednesday. Like, I'm just. Uh, I want to uh, press pause because there's say. a lot. There's a lot going on. There's a lot, lot going on. There and... really is. There really <laughs> is. Well, you know, if if you're new to the program, welcome. Every episode, we get a chance to talk to these amazing entrepreneurs that have one extra thing on their resume, and that's service to our country. And this week is no exception. We have the amazing uh, Lana, and I'm blanking on your last name because I don't have it in front of me. Duffy, because I have it right here. From <laughs> she's the CEO of Pathfinder Labs and an Army veteran. What's up, Lana? Hi, how are you? You know, stuff is going pretty well. Happy birthday. That's so sweet. Yeah. Thank you very uh, much. Um, yeah. You know, every episode we start by sort of rewinding the tape and getting to know our guest and understanding their journey in the military. And for you, you started off in the Army. So let's talk a little bit about that. What prompted you to go in the Army? Um, to, I would love to say it was something about, you know, oh, my patriotic duty. Um it was not. Uh, I was, I had already graduated from college. I got my master's in engineering and uh, mostly logic and, and data and so forth. And um, I was actually just sitting, I ended up with a job sort of related to civil engineering, was sitting there staring at a pile of blueprints and figuring out like how much a large-scale renovation of a building was going to cost uh, based on like linear feet of drywall. And uh, I was like, you know what? When I was uh, all the way up until probably like three years ago, I really wanted to be an astronaut. This is not being an astronaut. Um, This is calculating linear feet of drywall. So uh, I walked into my boss's office and said, I think I'm going to call a recruiter this afternoon and I don't know, maybe join the reserves or something. And he thought it was hilarious. So I decided that that kind of sealed the deal. And then I was like, well, you know, other people aren't going to have all the fun. I may as well go active duty decided not to do anything related to engineering, which was thrilling to my parents uh, <laughs> after the master's degree and nice. went into um, intelligence collection and basically ground intelligence work for the army 
which was the only branch of service that would let you choose your job field if you enlisted. So, uh, which is one of the reasons why I also enlisted as opposed to going in as an officer candidate. Interesting. So when you got in, right, you get in and you're enlisted. When you got to boot camp, did you go, oh, damn, I might have done something that I shouldn't have done. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, We've well, all been there. <laughs> yeah, like, I wouldn't, I don't know that I would necessarily say it was uh, in boot camp. I actually, I remember having a lot of fun in basic training. Same. Um like that's the part that I remember. I actually read some of my old letters that I had written to my now ex-husband while uh, while I was in and uh, or while I was at basic. And I was like, man, I feel miserable. I don't remember any of this. I think I was probably just trying to, you know, jazz it up a little bit. Um, it's called selective he, memory. We all block out those terrible things and we remember the good things. It's a coping mechanism. I Yeah, so, I'm, I'm with you, though, Lana. I had fun in boot camp because I'm short. I'm five foot nothing. And so in the Navy, they make you hold the flag if you're short. And so I was part of the officer's really? crew. Well, officers, I'm holding it up in quotes. But I was part of the like leadership crew of our company. So when we had like service week and everybody was, you know, cleaning pots and pans and scrubbing everything, we stood watch at an airport, like an, at a hangar and got like takeout delivered to us. It was amazing. <laughs> and I would do it that over some... in a blink. <laughs> okay. That is some crap. However, I do remember uh, my, so my father back in uh, uh, Vietnam era, yeah. uh, which he is also very careful to um, to clarify because he he also went in after college. But at that point, it was if you enlisted, then you could uh, not get drafted into the infantry. Oh, I see. And you could choose your job at that point as well. Yeah. So he uh, he graduated college in like '66 or something. So. He was like, well, I'm definitely going to get drafted. I may as well enlist. Mm -hmm. And he went into Armed Forces Radio. And um, so uh, I always comment that he fiercely uh, guarded the Potomac during his uh, time in service. And he he always tells stories about how during, like, basic training, he did things like – he was one of the only people who knew how to really type. So they would be like, everybody's going on an eight mile ruck march, except you, you are going to go over to the admin section and help them input stuff. So yeah, I always say that he (laughs) was in like a mock version of the army. That's so funny. What if anything surprised (sighs) you about boot camp? Um, I think that was probably the first time that uh so i had gone to like i had been in engineering school i'm used to being one of the only women in the room Mm uh but um it was the women at that point already started to get like a little bit cut through like a little bit i'm gonna show that i'm tougher than you Hmm. and that was uh that was that was new to me um 
Uh, and uh, Cynthia, I don't know if you had this experience at all or encountered this, but um, women in the service don't always get along so well. Um, I definitely you saw would- that. Yeah, I definitely yeah. saw that. The only, the right? only time that I did get along with other women were ones that were um, had worked a bit and had a little bit of you know, life experience and didn't just get in right after high school. Like if they, if they had already gotten their four-year degree and had a job and actually lived civilian life a bit before they joined, then, then it was okay. Cause I think that that built up their confidence, but I find that women in general, like not just in the service, but particularly within the defense sector, um, if you're kind of like a minority figure, then you're, you have to, prove yourself you know and yeah and so what what I wish and I think I mentioned this like many many moons ago many podcasts ago or I might have even mentioned it on my own podcast when um, Josh interviewed me was what I wish is when I was a younger woman that you know other women I looked at other women like you're you're not my competitor you're my ally and I wish more women understood that (laughs) Yeah, as we are allies, because we're all facing the same thing. It's not we're not here to outdo each other. It's how can we support each other? Right. Right. And I and I I feel like a lot of it was um, that was really the first time because, I mean, when I was in even when I worked in engineering before uh, between college and my enlistment, uh, it's a for engineering in general is male dominated. And then well, I was working in the construction field uh, in North New Jersey. So it was, um, yeah, it's the, the reputation precedes itself, I think, as far as, you know, the Sopranos and so forth. But um, uh, it's a very real thing. Uh, negotiating which mafia controlled which aspect of construction was part of my job. Wow. Um, but the... Uh, it was a really interesting concept to have to compete because most of the, most of my other experience had been essentially, if there were other women around, it was to support each other. And then in the military, it definitely did turn into a much more competitive environment. And I think a lot of that uh, dealt with the fact that you knew that there were only a certain number of seats hmm. for women at the table. Mm-hmm. And uh, you wanted to be one of the women at the table. So uh, since they were like, oh, for diversity's sake, we, can, we, we need to have a lady floating around. Um, otherwise, we'll get a, an equal opportunity, like an EO complaint. So... Uh, so there's like room for one woman and you wanted to be that one woman. Yeah. And so it was just competitive. Well, also in the enlisted space too, you know, when I, I got in, oh, 1000%. Yeah. Same as you, I, I chose enlisted because I knew what I wanted to do and I didn't want to be an officer and get bounced around. And, mm. um, and I specifically wanted to do field work. You know, I was in, um, PAO so, you know, for me, I didn't want to be sitting behind a desk editing some copy or wrangling the press. Like I wanted to get out there and get the story. And, you know, I was like the only female in my squadron. So there was there was a lot of proving to do. And whenever I was in a media embed, 
you know, a lot of uh, the work that I did, I'm embedded with, you know, infantry unit or the Marines or, and it's like ultra masculine, you had to prove yourself above and beyond. And so there was a lot of that. Yeah. There's a lot of confidence issues. There's a lot of, you know, even when I got out, I, I, I still struggle with kind of this, um, um, what do you call it? Like uh, imposter syndrome, hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like we, you know what you, you can do and you, but you have to stop and go, wait a sec. Do I really know what I do? Do I really know my worth? And right. I could, that can yeah. get the better of you if you don't, if you don't like get out of your head. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one, so many times, uh, especially uh, as, as an intelligence collector um, and not only that, but as an intelligence collector dealing in a, uh, in an infantry unit and then going out and uh, trying to develop intelligence sources from men in an environment which particularly in the extremist world of the cultures that we dealt with, it's super male dominated. Like they couldn't, uh, they wouldn't even, even after I developed them as a source, they wouldn't shake my hand because it's against their culture. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it was constant. It, you had to prove yourself to everyone. It was not just, uh, and it was every time. It wasn't just, hey, remember like last week how I gave you that report that uh, dug up three bombs before they went off? Um, it was walking in there and still justifying your worth every single time to some of these, uh, to some of the infantry folks that we, that we worked with all the time. And, uh, and it's, it's so draining. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I loved my job. I loved the things that I could do. It was definitely making a tangible difference in uh, the the, the way that, I mean, basically every time I had a successful meeting, I knew that someone else was going to be able to go home safely on our end, on the local national end it's, it, and so forth. And it was just, um, so it was incredibly, and it was, it was very challenging. It was, uh, a great job. I, would definitely still be in uh, if I could, but um, it was uh, it was still very. It was. I think the thing that definitely surprised me the most was just some of the competitive. Uh, I'm not uh, like a, <laughs> the the aspects from the other side of the house from you know the hyper-masculine guys, or uh, especially some of the stories that I have about getting what I like to call being little ladied, where uh, some of the um, more uh, self-labeled elite organizations would look at me when I came to them with information for them to act on and be like, well... All right, little lady, uh, we're going to have to verify that information before we act on it. Um, and, you know, how did that change the way you operated when you got, you know, that kind of response? 
Uh, well, my therapist would tell you that it's probably <laughs> a, a good part of the anger. <laughs> that I sure. deal with. Yeah, <laughs> I would imagine so. Um, well, I, can, I can imagine too, even in the, in the intelligence space. And before I went PAO, I, I almost went Navy um, Intel officer. And then I, I looked at the guy and I went, do I really want to go active duty? Do hmm. I really want to do Intel? You know, I'd be really good at it, but no, <laughs> for my own sanity, yeah. you know, I decided to stick with my guts and go with what I needed to do. But I would imagine if you're staring at some Intel that is, a, it's got a time sensitive stamp on it and somebody doesn't. <laughs> believe you or they don't realize that they're, what they're saying is they're not believing you but they're making you jump through the hoops when this is a time sensitive piece of information that people need to act on before there are serious consequences that would really really frustrate me because it's not just proving your worth but you're trying to protect uh your folks your colleagues you're yeah. also trying to protect your country yeah. And, yeah. and I, I was trying to protect has... the people I was sitting there who were doubting me. Yeah. Um, I was like, hey, you guys go out there, too. You probably <laughs> want to do something about this. You know, this guy, this super high value target for you is only going to be at this location for about an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's about a half an hour away. So you're probably going to want to move on this. Um and it and, that uh, happen often, right? Like to happen in a perpetual way. Yeah. To uh, Cynthia's point, happened, it's got to chip away often. Yeah. Ooh, it happened. It happened enough. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, uh, Did you have much support from the command at all? Uh, or your the uh, any commands that you reported under? I would. I would love to say yes. Uh, sometimes and sort of. Yeah. Um, it on um, it it really depended. Uh, actually, what was interesting is uh, one particular case uh, where the next day the uh, it was a one of the high value target type of missions. Um, the following day, the commander of one of those particular elite units uh, is actually the only one of all of them to uh to walk up to me and be like i am sorry we did not act on it they didn't take you seriously they have been spoken to about this um but uh it was um it got to a point where i was uh it they it almost beats you down to a level of I am reporting this um, and, you know, you guys are going to have to take it or leave it because I can't, uh, I, I can't continue to justify all of these things. I'm supposed to be back out there doing something else or, or whatever. So it's, um, it's tough. Uh, And that's another one of the reasons why, you know, now I have a very good therapist, but um, uh, it's 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 tough, especially when they don't act on something. And uh, I I worked for a little while in hostage rescue, and that's if that is not successful, uh, that almost assuredly ends very poorly, and. That is, 
it can be devastating when you're like, hey, this person is here. Uh, and chances are only for a very short while. And uh, they are like, well, fine, but we have to wait for, say, signal intelligence or something. And I can't go out there and tell them to pick up the phone um, and call call somebody. So um, yeah, it was it was it's it's so draining, but the rewards and the potential rewards outweighed it for me. So, I mean, I, I stayed in for 10 years doing all different levels of counterterrorism and counterespionage and um, some of the work in some of the more elite parts of our, our own version of those super secret types of organizations. Um, and I, I loved it. I really did. Uh, despite the hardships and despite not always being supported by even my own command. Yeah. Um, especially when you are a junior enlisted a uh, woman walking and I mean, I was, I was a bit of a handful, <laughs> I suppose, as a, as a junior enlisted, because I'm walking into this with, you know, a master's of what amounts to logic and the army can be the most illogical place what? to work. What the military is? Ill- <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? What? This is shocking news. Inefficient, just and I was like, "Why are we doing things this way? This is not the smart way to do things." And inevitably, the moment I would say something, my commander, whoever made that decision, was standing right behind me. (laughs) And uh, uh, so I got uh, what we call called on the carpet rather frequently uh, (laughs) to. Um, be reminded that uh, the 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 junior the junior uh, junior enlisted who's been in the military all of basically five minutes uh, really should not be talking about how to change operations more efficiently. Uh, yeah. Hey, be, be fortunate that you didn't join the Navy because 80% of the stuff that we do underway has nothing to do with anything other than things that when we had sails and yard arms and stupid shit like that, like <laughs> nobody needs to hear a boatswain whistle every 30 minutes. Nobody needs to like spit shine bright work every day. Like it's just, I hear you. I do. And it's, yeah. You're real good at painting though. I know how to do an azimuth. I'll, I'll tell you what. And, and, and it's been <laughs> useful one time in my life when my son was like, Hey, I got to do an azimuth for advanced calculus. I'm like, I've done that. That's awesome. And then no other time in his you know academic career was I useful. Um, yeah, it was cool. Hey, so when you decided to get out, you had this like fascinating career, which we could spend the whole hour talking about, but you decided like, this is it. I'm ready to go. What was that mindset for you? Yeah. Like, how did you say that's it? I'm ready to go. Well, I never did. Um, I was actually, uh, I was uh, hit by what I like to call a series of, un- of 
unfortunate events while in Iraq. And uh, it involved both a non-combat vehicle accident and then a uh, shortly after a, a roadside bomb attack, which the combined um, with their their powers combined, I scored myself multiple surgeries to include neurosurgery for uh, a brain hemorrhage and severe traumatic brain injury. That was while I was still in and. Uh, surgeries on my feet and my uh and I actually ended up just a couple of years ago having my lower right leg amputated for as a result of these uh these issues and um because it just I mean it would never get better so uh so my when I ended up getting out. It was because I walked into the doc. Uh, I walked into one of the doctor's offices actually to get him to sign a memo. This is after the brain surgery, um, a couple of years after the brain surgery and asked him, Hey, I'm supposed to deploy as an individual augmentee. So I need you to sign this memo that says I can, uh, deploy for like six months or something. And the doctor was like, Oh yeah, no, we were supposed to, put you up for a medical evaluation board uh, a couple of years ago when you had that whole brain surgery thing. Um, what are you still doing here? Hmm. And I was like, oh, um, well, nobody told me to go home. So uh, stuck around. Wait, Matter of fact, PCS is, twice. Is this one of those uh, inefficiencies we've been talking about uh, a couple of times? What? Yeah, <laughs> super weird. Super weird. Uh, oh, man. Um, and so he, uh, and so instead of getting a memo to deploy and then go, uh, when I came back, I was going to, you know, drop a packet to go to warrant officer school and, you know, continue to do my 20. And, uh, instead I, uh, was sent back to Walter Reed to, uh, get medically evaluated for discharge. And I ended up getting medically retired uh, right around my 10 year mark. Uh, so, um, it was, it was rather devastating, uh, because it was not something that I had necessarily planned on. Uh, but it was, uh, and so, and that started a, a pretty rough, transition because i was in some it it wasn't necessarily denial but it also wasn't um it wasn't a a very healthy environment to be getting out in um i wanted to stay in some of the three-letter agencies that did the type of work that i loved doing and i would get through some i would get through their entire process um and then they would be like oh wait medically we can't take you um and so uh so it was almost like a a mental state of denial of like i can still do this you know i've 
I'm I'll be fine. And uh, they they disagreed. Mm. But um, so then when you're at home and you're discharged, how hard is it for you to just reassimilate into like civilian life? And, and how hard was that of a struggle for you? Oh, boy. Uh, it was it was rough. I, I, I came back to uh, near the area where I had grown up. I, I grew up in the North Jersey area. And then came, so I came back and moved to New York City, um, ripped off the Band-Aid, sold my house, got a divorce uh, from my infantry husband. Mm. Um, oh, God bless the 82nd. But uh, <laughs> the... Um, it was a, it was actually very hard. And New York city has over 200,000 veterans. Uh, it's, it's pretty well populated for as far as veterans. There are a lot of different services and so forth, but I couldn't figure out how to filter between them or, uh, where I might be a good fit. Um, I was not seeking mental health treatment. It was, uh, it was, it was a very, very tough transition. Um, and really, I think what kind of saved me was uh, Hurricane Sandy had just hit as I was transitioning out, and. Uh, I found kind of a purpose as I volunteered to do some of the recovery efforts from Sandy and then started on some of the rebuilding efforts and got plugged into a few different organizations that did specific processes for veterans that way. And then mostly went off of like referrals from people. So they would say, oh, hey, uh, when you are ready to start looking at mental health, look at this organization or, or look at this one. So, um, so that was more, uh, that kind of was the impetus for why I ended up starting my company, mm. um, was just to figure out how do we, how do we refer each other to places when we don't necessarily know each other or how do we figure out what's good and what's not and what's good for me and what's not because I kept running into people who were like oh yeah I walked into this organization and the person at the front desk was kind of a jerk and I just walked back out and you know what I'm never going to seek that kind of help again because I couldn't handle that type of stress but if you knew about it walking in it might have been a completely different story. Yeah. Or if somebody had referred you and said, hey, I know of a place that has helped me and it might help you. You know, right. something you something you touched upon, and, and this is something I relate to, like just hearing your story is when you left your engineering job and went into the military, it seemed like you were looking for a higher purpose. You know, you were looking for meaning and something to contribute to. And then leaving the military, you were also looking for that. And I... I have a series of disabilities. I'm not a service disabled veteran, but I have a series of disabilities. And it was really difficult for me transitioning out because I was med boarded. But um, 
to me, finding my identity and being able to find that purpose, no matter what it says on your DD-214 or no matter what somebody else says about you, um, you know, because my disabilities are hidden. So they don't look, I don't look like a disabled veteran, but I am. And, and so I had that, that internal struggle. And um, like, how, how important is it for disabled veterans to find their tribe and to find their purpose? Oh boy. Yeah. Um, so it's especially, uh, especially as you're, you're getting out and especially if it was uh, like off of a, a medical board, whether or not you're retired or, or not, it's, so it's so critical because you're essentially being told like uh i don't care where you go but you can't stay here mm-hmm. and uh because you are no longer fit to do the job that you want to do and so and being told that no matter what it's it feels kind of like getting fired mm-hmm. yeah um and that's uh, and to somebody who is then disabled in some way on top of that, you're like, well, I feel like I'm I, either I feel like I'm OK or wow, this this has a much bigger impact than I kind of thought or anticipated. And so being able to find the sense of worth after having been essentially told you know, find a new home because uh, we don't want you anymore hmm. is uh, it's so discouraging and it's, it's painful. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was your, what was your, when you started Pathfinders, what was the objective? Uh, so I started Pathfinder in order to help people. Initially it was to help people find their fit mm-hmm. in nonprofits and benefits and services that were available to them locally. Hmm. And it was to kind of filter out that noise of doing a regular, like a a Google search of like, who's going to help me find housing in the New York city area. And you come up with like 10 things and then you're like, "Uh, who's helping veterans find housing and is that relevant? And then how successful are they? So it was, um, it was helping to figure out that noise and to, to really make it a community and to be able to give people a way to anonymously contribute their feedback so other people knew what to expect walking in. And then we started adding artificial intelligence. And then we started adding uh, analytic components so that we can work with organizations to help them improve those services based on the impact that they are giving to the military and veteran community. And that's actually become kind of the cornerstone of our business is to saying like, hey, you guys are doing some really good stuff. We want to help you do it better uh, and more efficiently. Um, and, uh, and, and then also working with uh, not only the veteran community, but with the military and with the transitioning components and even the reserve components who have no idea half the time what they even qualify for. Right. Yeah. And then 
Who would you describe as your your customer, and where do you find them? Uh, well, we are uh, the uh, the venture capitalist nightmare of being a dual market solution. So we have users, which are the veterans, the military members, reservists, and their family members, their spouses or caregivers. And uh, that is essentially the, the, the free component of what we do, which is uh, to help them connect to a resource. And then we also have a client side, which uh, is almost on a freemium model where they can claim their page so they can respond to a review or they can connect with someone who's looking for more information. But uh, to actually provide the analytics, which will help them improve or raise more funds or anything else that we do charge for, because, you know, we can be a social enterprise all day long, but it's still an enterprise. Right, right. And then, uh, you know, as you're building this up, what have you learned along the way that you've taken from the military in this business? Uh, I've learned, <laughs> I've learned what not to do. Um, <laughs> oh boy, have I learned what we'll, not we'll, to do. We'll cover that um, in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, one of my, uh, one of my military leaders who I did not get along with terribly well said to me at one point, uh, uh do all like, uh, when you become a leader, do all of the things that you admire in other leaders and pay careful attention to what you, they do that you don't like and don't do those things. Um, would have been really helpful if that particular <laughs> leader had followed some of their own advice, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, um, I learned a lot about just motivating people. Uh, and some of this has to do with my actual time in the military. And some of it has to do with being an intelligence collector and an interrogator, which is to say, if you're trying to motivate people to do something that they don't necessarily want to do, you've got to key into how this actually helps their own personal motivation um, with service members, like with, uh, with, with privates as is when I finally got out, I was senior enlisted. I was a, uh, I was a certain first class. It was an E7. And it's a little easier to tell people who are junior to you, like, Hey, go do this. And they have to do it. Um, that doesn't happen in the real world. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it was more of figuring out like, okay, well, but I can use kind of this other motivation. So they're not being motivated by service. What will motivate them? What will get them uh, to go do things that they're voluntold to do? Um, and uh, just, general dynamics of, of what did work as far as being a military leader or uh, having that ability to also turn around to an officer 
uh, or in the case of the quote unquote real world, someone who is maybe a partner or equivalent and not someone who you can actually give direction to, but to be able to say like, hey, here's my advice. Here's a, you know, kind of take it or or leave it. Um, almost a uh, not my circus, not my monkeys type of scenario. You know, you put the advice out there as a senior enlisted. If the officer takes it, cool. If they don't, uh, <laughs> I mean, it'll probably roll back down on you anyway, but like that's going to happen one way or another. Yeah. So what are things that you uh, have learned not to do? Um, or through a series of like, yeah, I fucked up. I don't want to do that again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, uh, well, I mean, I, I certainly treat my uh, female employees uh, a bit differently. Um, and uh, the, I, th- I think that a lot of it is, comes from a, generally uh, that the military mindset of like giving direction and effect and expecting uh, the either knowledge or something like people are generally in the civilian world trained to do a job based on study or something like that. And unless you're hiring someone who is experienced in the exact thing and under the exact leadership style that you have, there's going to be adjustment. And I think that that took a lot of figuring out that there is that adjustment period that's needed, especially when dealing with people who did not serve Mm -hmm. because they are they're they're under a different impression and it's not you're not able as a human being to order someone around or go tell them to do a, a meaningless side task like uh go mow the parade field um so uh it's it's figuring out how to get those things done and how to talk to subordinates that don't have to listen to you. Right. Um, also, how to fire someone because mm. you can't do that in the military. Yeah. Um, and boy, that's hard. Uh, hiring and firing are and hiring and firing and asking for money are some of the hardest things to learn because you don't do them in the military. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's definitely one of the hard lessons that a lot of entrepreneurs face. So you're not alone. Um, (laughs) What do you see this going in the next five to 10 years? Like what do you hope Pathfinder becomes as a, you know, as a, as a company? Um. I would like to see Pathfinder. We're already starting our, our national expansion. Uh, we are starting our, our, our app expansion. We're starting to work with larger and larger clients like the Air Force. Nice. Um, and 
I would like to see it become a military community, in particular household type of name, because uh, the services that we provide can be life-saving in some cases to people who are searching for a particular service. Um, I have no intention of like making millions. It's it's more of the case of like, I, I want the communities and the services to actually work together uh, and improving efficiencies is, is always like a, a cool side effect of that. But um, I would also like to see it expand probably in about, I would say four or five years, I would like to have that military community aspect pretty well covered and be able to expand into other sectors that really need help, such as uh, immigrants and refugees, uh, the recently incarcerated. Uh, so these are other communities that we often overlook uh, as, as a society, not as veterans, but just as a society. These are people who are, again, searching for connections and resources and assistance that can't always find it. Well, we, we've talked a lot about the parallels between people incarcerated and the people in the military, right? Because a lot of the <laughs> veterans, and we've said this a few times on the show, like when you ask a veteran, when you meet a veteran for the first time, it's usually the same question that you ask somebody that's been incarcerated, how long were you in, right? It's that same that same question. So there are a lot of parallels. So kudos to you for, for doing that uh, in the in the company. Where, where can people find it online? Uh, people can find us online at, oh, sorry. Uh, people can find us online at www.pathfinder.vet, that's V-E-T, or uh, pathfinderlabs.com. And uh, we do have an app which if you search Pathfinder Community or Pathfinder Veterans, you should happen upon it. And that is for, um, we are growing that app, by the way, for, for, for in our expansion. So if you are uh, in some of the more remote areas, you may not see a whole ton there now, but you know, that's my, that's my job every weekend is sitting there plugging more stuff in. Nice. Um, and you can always reach out to me at Elana, E-L-A-N-A, at pathfinderlabs.com. And you can tell me if there is a service or organization in your local area that you would like to see added because I am adding stuff very much literally every single day. It's awesome. Lana, it's been great to get to know you. Your story is so fascinating and I appreciate you being vulnerable and, and, and sharing with us. I really do. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining. Thank you guys. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.